Welcome to our listeners. This is Marcia Epstein with Talk With Me in Lawrence, Kansas, where we're recording on a lovely July day in Kansas. And if you know Kansas, that means, yeah, it's hot and humid, but it really is pretty too. And there's a lot going on in July in Lawrence, Kansas and around lots of goodness. Um, I'm always very conscious of art things, community things, getting people out, getting people listening, meeting new people, learning things, getting that reminder that you are part of a community, you do belong, you are important, and you really are not alone. And that to me is pretty cool. I'm just going to give a quick shout out and then get to my guests um, because I just, this is stuff that, that to me is really exciting and important with lots of other exciting and important things. July 28th and 29th, Friday and Saturday in Lawrence, Kansas. Stephanie Mott, who is the founder and director of many things, including Kansas Statewide Transgender Education Project and the Transgender Faith Tour. Stephanie has organized yet again another Trans Kansas Conference, and this year it's on July 28th and 29th, Friday and Saturday. You can find out information. You can still register. It's a really important learning opportunity, support opportunity, connecting opportunity. So keep that in mind, Trans-Kansas Conference 2017. And just as that conference ends in the afternoon, early evening of Saturday, July 29th, at 7.30 p.m. on Saturday, July 29th, head to Miss Sally's at 1031 New Hampshire to experience the premiere of the play Run, a musical, which was written, choreographed, directed, and actually is starring Michael Deeker and a lovely cast. Fabulous people, great costumes, great messaging. It's about life. It's about hard stuff. It's about gender and sexual orientation and depression and alcoholism and becoming your own superhero. It's gonna be so cool. And if that wasn't enough to come to you, uh, Michael is a volunteer advocate for the Sexual Trauma and Abuse Care Center. And the $15 tickets are to benefit the Sexual Trauma and Abuse Care Center here in Lawrence, Kansas. And so that is Run the Musical. You can find it on Facebook and you can find it on the Talk With Me Facebook page announcement of several shows, including this one with a guest who connected with me. I connected with him thanks to, uh, hey, the station manager, Jay Walks. Today, my guest is Chris Connor, who in the little bits of things I've gotten to learn about him already is a professor, whatever the title is. I'm not very good at accurate titles sometimes at Washburn University. And also I'm thinking kind of an expert in electronic dance music. <laughs> Welcome, Chris. Yeah, I guess I, I guess you could say I get around the block. Um, yeah, so I'm a professor of sociology at Washburn. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm uh, researching and uh, I'm an urban ethnographer interested in um, studying neighborhoods and gay communities and how they've developed and the problems and issues facing uh, the LGBT community or communities uh, in an era of heightened visibility. That's kind of my current shtick. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I did do work with electronic dance music. That was my dissertation. <laughs> And uh, which uh, there is a publisher interested in that. So there should be a book coming out soon about uh -huh. that. Cool. And uh, before that, my master's thesis was actually on gay nightclubs and how gay men interact in those spaces. So I've been doing this gay thing for, <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could say my whole life, but as a researcher for quite a long time. <laughs> That's great. You can do this gay thing. <laughs> you know, it's kind of become part of me, I guess you could say. And I think it's really intriguing to know that people can can use things that I will refer to as popular culture in their academic pursuits because those popular culture things, dance clubs, you know, music, those gathering places are really critical. And 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 I think about you know, when I parallel that to my work in suicide prevention, 
one of the things that we know that that makes life worth living is knowing that you belong. And sometimes the way you find your people is in those places like clubs where you go and you know, you, you hope, I say you know it's safe, but you hope it's safe. And then immediately Orlando comes to mind, but you know, you, you look for the safety of people who are like you that you may not be immersed with all the time, but sometimes you get that opportunity at special social places. You hit the nail on the head. That's exactly kind of what um, drew me to those spaces. And um, I remember being a young kid within the uh, Indianapolis uh, nightclub, concert, rave, goth, industrial scene. And um, that's kind of what drew me to those was looking for a, a place where I fit in, a place where I belong, uh, being around like-minded individuals. Um, what's interesting to me is uh, with the neighborhood stuff, and if you talk to a lot of um, older gay folk, they'll back me up on this. Um, but it used to be that uh, people would go to these places and it was about connecting with other people. So when I first came out, Grindr was not a app that was available and people went to the gay bar to network and find people, uh, not necessarily for sex, but if that happened, that was a kind of added bonus, I guess you could say. Um, but they went there to um, connect with others. And uh, today, I think a lot of people um, exaggerate or um, focus more so on the kind of sexual, carnal, hedonistic aspects of it, um, which in many ways parallels my other stuff with dance music culture. Um, and so um, one of the concepts that I work with in my work is called the culture industry. And it's a concept developed by these um, Jewish intellectuals during the 1940s in which they saw culture as increasingly becoming mass produced and standardized. And the result is you lose those humanistic elements that make culture such an awesome thing you know that that ability to connect with other people and um, that sense of community that is as you say that it, it again it parallels so many things and one very different thing but that that whole thing about the losses that happen in in the integrity and value of things when the goal is mass production mm -hmm. it's culture or Actually, what, what popped into my mind was a talk um, I had with Simon Prethi, who talks about um, nutrition, and, and she was saying that that reminder that like the mass production of food in this country is based on things like sellability and transportation, not on nutritional value and flavor. So when you're buying from those kinds of major conglomerates, it's very different than when you go to the farmer's market and you taste what vegetables taste like when they've been picked within the last day or hour or couple of days. It's a whole different experience than those interesting looking things at the grocery store sometimes. <laughs> well, um, my uh, ethnographic research methods professor would be happy that this conversation has come back to food because he uses <laughs> that as a metaphor um, and, uh, in his courses, but um, yeah, no, that's kind of the whole point of, of my work is showing that as things become profit oriented, they lose those things that make them a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. So, and food is, I'm gonna have to look this, this up and, and maybe you've opened up a new research line for me, um, but uh, it, it Things have definitely changed. And if you look at the course of um, the LGBT rights gains, they always follow this uh, profit motive argument that gays are great consumers. We have lots of disposable income. And so you should make us equal because that's going to be good for your bottom You may line. not like us, but really we have money to spend. So you might as well be nice to us and benefit from us. Exactly. Which is sort of, it's that weird to me. It's, it's that weird kind of 
sellout argument that comes with a lot of things. Um, we, we talk about it in arts and culture. Um, when I think about local arts and culture planning and the national people's movement called the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture, that rather than saying something is worthwhile only because of how much money it generates to a community, let's talk about what the real benefits are and support it for those reasons. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow, this is so amazing. <laughs> Everything is... Um, coming together. I uh, didn't expect this. It usually doesn't happen. I usually have to make an argument for why my work is valuable. Um, so it's nice to be with someone who kind of gets that. Um, yeah. Um, you know, and, and there are some other things happening. Um, uh, some sad things that are, are kind of result of this is you have a kind of hierarchy of um, at least within the gay male community, which um, is one that I'm intimately connected with. You have um, a kind of division based on those who fit a certain ideal image, right, about that is kind of this mass-produced gay image that is marketed to and those who don't fit that image and um, a kind of gay underclass, if you will, and um, the interesting thing, though, is that these images are reinforced by the people who are within those communities. So I have a, a paper on Grindr, right, the social media app that gay men use to, uh, for dating with air quotes. Um, and in it, I found that um, gay men often reproduce ageism, homophobia, homophobia. Uh, uh, discrimination based on race. And um, so sociologically, at least, it's fascinating to me how we reproduce this kind of hierarchy of oppression within our own community, and we know better. Um, so I guess that's kind of where we're at, right, is we've got this, um, uh, you know, kind of culture industry surrounding uh what it is to be gay. And the result of that is um, a kind of stratified gay identity, more or less. And to me, it's, it's really something that I think about is, as like this history evolution in general, like for people in general, as well as personally. And, and like one of, one of the things that it seems like a story that I it just pops into my mind now and then when I think about people and their own sexual orientations, it seems like at least there was a time, I don't know if it's true right now, when, when one of the things that would be common is when somebody decided it's time for people to know who I am they needed to do that loud, boldly, so that there wouldn't be any question. And so I think about a friend, Regina, and she was like notorious for man. You go with her to the coffee shop, and what does she say to the server? Bring this lesbian a coffee. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> just to make sure if there's any question in your mind about who I am, that's my identity. <laughs> and that, that didn't continue throughout her life, but, but there was a point when that was what she needed to do. And I and I get that. I get there being a, an advantage to, to making it like you need to know this about me, you know, and being upfront. And and actually I think that's true with lots of things. When people discover something, they believe in something, they, you know, whether it's about themselves or the world, that that sometimes that's that's the thing they put out the most. And then sometimes it kind of integrates. I, I think about that, you know, is it, you know, where where do how do people personally come to terms with their identities and the evolution of their identities. And I think now we would say that there's also not a need to say, this is who I am. I've defined myself at this point in my life and I'm always gonna be that primarily, you know? I think that when I first got introduced, for example, to, to people who, what we then called, I think, transsexual and mostly transgender, is what I hear, and I say that because I have friends in San Diego, and they refer to themselves as transsexual. It's like, okay, that's your word, you know. But I'm not gonna, you know, you have the right to whatever your word is. Anyway, 
that it was it was still looked at as gender as binary. So you are male or female, and your body may not represent who you are, but those are your two choices, male or female, you know. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, you know, maybe one day, maybe another day, you know, maybe differences, maybe in between. There are all these different labels with gender identity. There are all these different labels um, with, and labels is, sounds stupid, but there are different, different ways of trying to express, to communicate to people who I am by gender identity, by sexual orientation, you know, all these different things. And, and again, it's no longer looked at as this or that, black or white. And that, that makes things more complicated. And, and honestly, one of the things that I see within my sort of, I could say, friendship circle is, is transgender really fitting with the, the sexual orientations, you know, is that really, is it really LGBTQ, you know, all together, or is it really better to say, you know, there's, there's gender and then there's sexual orientation and somebody who's trans may or may not feel welcome or really want to be part of, you know, other issues related to sexual orientation. It's like, oh, everything's been tossed up in a different way. And I think that's, that's real life that continues to change. Wow. That's it. <laughs> There's a lot there. There's a lot there. So I'll take the last part because <laughs> it's on the tip of my brain. Um, there is some interesting data out there from a 2013 Pew uh, survey of LGBT Americans, uh, which you can look up online and play with and read the report. And it's fascinating stuff. Um, one of the things that I found when I was poking around with that data set was uh, trans folk actually identify with and see a greater need to preserve neighborhoods than the other uh, alphabets of the LGBT soup. Um, and so I, I was at a conference, I was presenting this data, and um, one of the things that um, came up in the discussion was that maybe this um, what we're seeing, what we're witnessing with this data is that the most marginalized people within this LGBT plus, as I like to call it, um, community is that the most marginalized are the ones who benefit the most from the kinds of resources that are available, right? So um, for instance, in Kansas City, there is a uh, Thanksgiving dinner that is hosted by Missy Bees, and um, which is a local gay bar uh, in Kansas City. And those that don't have families uh, can attend. Well, um, as you so eloquently pointed out, things have changed. There is a kind of more of an acceptance and those dinners have shrunk and they're not as big as they once were, but the kinds of people that are attracted to that or who go to that are um, the most marginalized or the most, um, I guess, discriminated against Mm -hmm. the people who don't have a kind of uh, shield to put up against Mm -hmm. the kinds of discrimination that still exists. Mm -hmm. Um, Second thing I think um, is that, uh, Gosh, there's so much there. There's a Little Britain skit if you're interested in comedy. And uh, uh, I I can't remember the exact title, but there's a a gay man. He's in a small village in in the UK, and he's the only gay in the village. And anytime anyone else comes out as gay, he immediately chases them off because he wants to be the only gay in the village (laughs) so that he can whine about being the only gay in the village. Um. And I think this concept of validation keeps popping up in my research. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a great psychologist who's written a book called The Velvet Rage. And uh, in it, he talks about how gay men construct this sense of self, this identity, uh, this what he calls the velvet curtain, right? This performance, this theater um, where... They are the most perfect chef. They have the most perfect home. They have um, their um, the most perfect career, right? Within a certain defined area, right? With usually within the arts or marketing or something of that nature. Um, 
And uh, if that identity is threatened, if it is attacked, if it is not validated by others, or if that, that validation is threatened, we lash out. And he calls that the velvet rage. <laughs> and it's a kind of interesting adaptation of some Freudian stuff. Sorry, nerd out there for a minute. But um, he says that basically because we live most of our lives as straights, um, when we do come out, we seek validation. We seek um, something that says that I exist and um, uh, and some kind of recognition from others mm -hmm. that 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 you are a valid individual. And um, uh, I think we're still kind of struggling with that. And I think there's still a kind of need for that. And um, uh Part of the problem is, uh, as this kind of culture industry has built up around the LGBT community, but especially the gay male community, um, and I want to talk a little bit more about that in a second, um, it's, it has separated us from one another. And so one of the things I have to continuously remind myself about is that as a single gay man, I am the norm. Um, that same data set, uh, only 40% of gay men were in a committed relationship versus 66% um, of lesbians, 68% of uh, bi women, 40% of bi men. And um, those numbers are very interesting to me. So that means that uh, roughly 60% of all gay men are not in a committed relationship. So... Uh, most people assume that that means that uh, these individuals are uh, just wanting to get engaged in hedonistic sexual exploits and, you know, be typical men, right? Well, uh, there's a nearly universal support for same-sex marriage, right, amongst these men. So they want marriage, but they're not in a committed relationship. So as a sociologist, that finding kind of screams to me that there's something structurally going on, that there's something preventing those connections from being made. And I think a lot of that is the messy stuff that is occurring within us as we struggle for um, identity and as we struggle for connecting with other people. Um, you know, again, it comes back to the where we started at, right? This ability to connect with others and to be a part of a, you know, a, a collective that has um, kind of been drowned out by the the noise that's created by this this culture industry. Yeah. And and thinking about that, the, there are a couple things that I've wondered for a long time, like Lawrence. Kansas, Lawrence is looked at as different from a lot of other parts of Kansas is looked at with the university influences as, as somewhat more liberal, yet Lawrence has not been a place that has developed gay neighborhoods or um, the, the gay um, gathering places, clubs, bookstores, those kinds of things. If they have existed, it's been pretty short-lived. And I was recently talking to um, Nathan Stitt, who, um, as Ms. Amanda Love, is the host mm. of Thirsty Thursdays at the Jazz House, which is um, a drag show um, with other performers as well. And, and I went to it for the first time just because I don't, go out a lot. Sorry. <laughs> I will go out with you anytime. I'm always looking for a partner in crime. And so the thing, and I said this to Nathan and I, and, and I repeated it because it was like, to me, it was such an important thing. What I experienced being at the jazz house that Thursday, as we got there a little bit early, cause I didn't, I, his Facebook event post time, 
was different than the performance time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like, I should be used to this. Art time is always different than other people's time. But anyway, so so we were there early. We were watching people come in to the audience. We were watching performers come in. We were watching um, performers mingle with people, you know. And what I experienced in that space, and this is what I said to, to Nathan and, and applauded him for, was it was clearly this wonderful, accepting, safe place for people to be who they were. And not that people looked alike, you know what I mean? It was like, okay, so here's this group of women who by appearance I would say are Hispanic. I have no idea about their gender their gender identity or sexual orientation. Their gender presentation was definitely female. You know, so I see this group and, and when I think about people who are Hispanic, I think there are a lot of cultural influences that would, would be against people of different sexual orientations than heterosexual and certainly against people identifying as trans. So, so, I'm, so I'm noticing that and I'm noticing people whose gender um, presentation is very consciously not androgynous but ambiguous in terms of some male features, some female features in the presentation. And I'm, no, I mean, I'm noticing lots of different things. I'm not, you know, I'm not meaning to say either of those were the majority, but what I was noticing is a lot of people, a lot of different looks, a lot of different mannerisms, and people were having a blast, you know, and, and creating that kind of safety and comfort and fun together is a huge gift to the community. You know, and, and Nathan's like, well, we want to have this show. It's like, yeah, that's great. It's great for you all on the stage to do what you're doing. But I want you to hear what I'm saying about how important it is what you're doing for the community by providing this space. It's amazing and beautiful. But we don't, I don't think we have a lot of that, you know, in Lawrence, Kansas. So, uh, you know, I know you asked me on the show and you wanted me to give it the kind of personal touch. So I'll kind of open up for a minute. Um, one of the reasons that I got attracted to um, getting involved in studying these spaces was because I did not necessarily fit into those spaces as a kind of goth kid growing up in Indianapolis. Uh -huh. And um, um, let me kind of uh, flash forward here. Um I remember having a conversation with a couple club owners and DJs and they just didn't get it right. They didn't get that. It's not, the show is not necessarily all about you, right? The show is not necessarily about the DJ or the fabulous venue that you've provided or performer X, Y, Z, that it's about all these different variables that come together and make the kind of magic happen. Mm -hmm. um, on that same note, um, I I don't feel that a lot of gay spaces offer the same thing they did in my youth. And maybe some of this is nostalgia, admittedly. But uh, I do remember being able to go out alone, and that was acceptable. And one of the things that surprised me recently is that it's it appears as though that is definitely against the norm, that you go out with a group of friends, and one of the downfalls I think of that is nobody actually meets anybody new. So these groups kind of reinforce those walls that are there. Um, so I'm laughing because I'm just a little blurb. Okay, so I'm old enough when people had house phones, right? And so <laughs> you call somebody, some friend, and you get their roommate and you have a conversation. And now it's always person to person. Back to you. Oh, yeah, no. Um, you know, my grandmother used to talk about the party line, right? So you call a number. Even bigger and, than a house yeah. um, and But going out alone is really not so much seemingly accepted. I mean, nobody wants to be the lone person at the end of the bar drinking. Um, and it it is something I think that's crept up um, for a number of reasons. Um but yeah, it is very, um, how do I put this? It, it's just, you're seen as strange, I think. Um, and even within some major metropolitan cities that it's the norm that you go out with someone and, um, and as a result, I think some of that magic 
that can happen that you meet someone new and um, develop these kinds of uh, strange friendships don't happen as much. Um, and, and I think some of that is safety too. Um, because there, there is a kind of, um, I guess, darker side to some of this stuff that I've um, personally been a victim of, but um, some of the, many of the stories I've collected um, also talk about this. Yeah, and see for me, when you bring up safety, it, it strikes a real personal chord and I'm, going to speak about a friend, I'm not going to identify who I'm talking about, mm-hmm. but, but he and I had a conversation recently about how as, as a gay male, he unfortunately had some very abusive experiences with older gay male. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as happens for people who've been in any kind of abusive relationship, regardless of genders and sexual orientations, when when you're the one who's experienced the abuse, part of what happens, part of the abuse is this limiting who you have interaction with and discrediting your way of seeing the world. Um, and so it takes a while and some really conscious effort and often support for people to learn to trust themselves and their judgments of other people and how much they will sort of, my word, tolerate how other people treat them and how how strongly they they defer to, they don't wanna hurt somebody else. So, so they become very vulnerable to abuse until they learn to really, really trust themselves. And, and I think, because as we're talking about sexual orientation, that that when somebody has had to often sneak around to be able to meet people who share sexual orientation and feel comfort and try to figure out role models and all that kind of stuff, that 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 we we sort of build up this likelihood still that people who identify anywhere in the queer community and trans are likely to experience abuse at some points. In fact, you know, this leads just a brief mention of, I remember reading a piece that basically said, assume that anybody in that community has PTSD because of the experiences. And so the safety thing that you just brought up, I mean, it, it is real and, and then it becomes harder to know who's safe, who's not safe when, when you've been discredited a lot by somebody who's been abusive to you. So I think you're talking about the Huffington Post article that just came out not too long ago. This actually was several years ago. Oh, interesting. The article I was referring to, and I'd have to go back to, to find it. But. Well, there's a Huffington Post article that recently came out where it kind of – so um, they <laughs> it was probably one of the most negative uh, – um, attacks, I guess, on neighborhoods or gay communities and gay spaces that I've seen in a while. Uh, yeah. And one of the things that he does mention is the uh, issue of PTSD and that, um, be, and, and he discusses a study in which they found that um, those who had grown up in kind of rural areas have higher cortisone levels, which is the um, stress hormones. Yeah, stress hormones. So as a result, they develop a kind of um, PTSD that is ongoing because they never learned or never um, developed those uh, stress coping mechanisms early on because they were always on edge, always hiding their identity, always, um, you know, dealing with this kind of internal struggle. And for me, it was fascinating because I think I see a lot of um, what this article was discussing and and it makes perfect sense. Um, Some of the kind of problems and adaptations that um, uh, I'm, I'm witnessing right within people that I'm close to. 
So we're, we're in a pretty heavy part of the conversation and we do need to take a break, but I want to promise our listeners what we want to come back with is, so what do we do? What do I do as a heterosexual woman? What do you do as a gay man? What can we do to make this a better community, a better state, a better world? You know, how, what, what are the things we do? And for those people who have experienced abuses of different kinds, how do they move forward in, in their healing as well as safety? Because to me, that's what it's all about. It's like, so, so how, do, how, do we, how do we have those great experiences? And that's what we're headed to. So we're going to hear from a couple of local businesses that sponsor lowenshits.com. And then we will be back for more conversation with Chris Connor. Welcome back to talk with me with Chris Connor. And Chris, let's talk about that stuff. Like, so, so you are a sociologist, you are a professor, you are a gay man, you are a lover of music, you are lots and lots of different things in your life, you know? And so where do you see like, some suggestions, some benefits, how we head to a positive individual and, and community kind of future where people are who they are and they're loved and respected for who they are, not tolerated, but actually loved and respected for who they are. You know what I mean? What do you do? And, and it has to start internally too. You know, we get negative messages and we think crappy things about ourselves and, you know, that needs to break down too. So, so how does what you're doing in your research and your teaching um, translate into, so what do we do? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the worst question to ask an academic. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do we do? Um, well, uh, again, I'm going to refer to this, this article. Um, one of the things that they found was the simple fact that knowing the, the data and the statistics and knowing that they were the norm rather than the exceptional case um, was psychologically uh, healing, right? That it produced um, um, some beneficial things, less stress overall. Um, and I th so I think one of the main points that, or one of the main features of my work is trying to get the word out, right? And so I'm, lucky that I work at a place where they value this kind of public sociology, where I can go out, do these kinds of radio appearances, write for gay news publications that might not get as much credit elsewhere. Um, now, okay, all, all that aside, what do we do? Well, I think we need to be mindful of, um, uh, actions and behaviors within gay spaces. And so this part I'm talking to the kind of urban gay folk within, um, you know, places like Boys Town, San Francisco, et cetera. Um, you know, the one, one thing is we need to be mindful of others, our actions and our behaviors and how those might be alienating to other people. Right. And, um, the second part so is give some examples about what you're talking about there. Well, it's kind of ironic because I'm thinking about some of the behaviors I've witnessed here in Lawrence, which are actually more probably, um, I guess, uh, they're, they're better examples. For instance, people who um, put things in their grinder profile that says if you're 22 years uh, if you're older than 22 years, then don't contact me. Right. Uh, um, but also within these, these places, you know, telling just simple things like telling racist jokes, making fun of people because of their weight, their age, the fact that they're alone, um, et cetera. Right. Those are behaviors that we need to call others out on. And we also need to be mindful of, in our own minds, how those behaviors might um, be shameful or produce a sense of shame in others that then, you know, kind of defeats the purpose of what these places are meant to be. So, so the way I, some of the ways I translate that is one, starting with be kind to other people, be empathetic to other people, you know, other people's, the way they're affected by things 
even if it isn't what you think you would be, how you would be affected, doesn't matter. It's like be be empathetic about how this might be for somebody else, and and stand up as opposed to stand by when something happens, something is said, you know. And and I think one of the one of the suggestions I've heard in a variety of circles is if you witness even with somebody you, you don't know, maybe especially with somebody you don't know, um, something that looks dangerous in terms of verbal abuse or potential physical abuse, if you can go up to that person who is appearing to be victimized, look that person in the eye and say, hey, you know, could, would it be, would you like to, to go over here with me? You know, would you, you know, how are you? Engage with that person, not challenge the perpetrator but try to make contact for safety with that person and follow that person's lead as to what might be helpful. But don't just watch it. And if it looks really dangerous, I know there are dilemmas about do you do you try to get help for somebody through law enforcement? I know that opens up a whole big old can of worms about how is that really going to happen. So there's there's going to be that question about what is helpful, but when we can to, to do something to help somebody uh, by standing up. So I have about a bazillion stories. Uh -huh. um, I will start with the kind of most moving story that I've got, um, which is uh, uh, two young men um, in a kind of medium-sized uh, urban area. Meeting someone uh, new to the area and figuring out that this person was addicted to meth. And they then took this boy in to their home, cleaned him up, got him better. Flash forward five years later, he's totally clean, is a registered nurse. Um, wow. And it is. Um, still all the rage. I guess he's gotten quite handsome. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that to me, that's like the best story I've got because it, yeah. it shows the kind of power and positivity of things that can happen. And, and I want to note that there was not a sexual relationship between all of these people, that these were two young men who saw someone and he, they helped them out uh -huh. and uh, what a success. Um, the others, I mean, some of the minor stories I have um, that both speak to this kind of victimization that we do to others and moments of praxis that or moments of opportunity that we can um, help people out. I'm in Boys Town, Chicago. I'm outside smoking because, you know, if I'm drinking, I'm smoking usually. <laughs> uh, and like any rat fink ethnographer, I'm, of course, listening in on all the conversations I can. And I hear this young boy talk about how his friends just ditched him in the middle of Boys Town and he has no way home. And, um, you know, I, I just, just, I couldn't, this kid was so young and I'm thinking, my God, somebody's going to overhear this and, you know, do something to this kid. Right. So I reached in my pocket. I gave him five bucks and I said, here, you know, hope that, hope that helps you get home. Uh, and he said, thank you. And, um, you know, we went our ways and I wasn't expecting anything out of that. That was just something that I knew that I could do to help this kid out. Um, and I mean, I've got, I've got some other stories, um, you know, of of kind of kind angels out there, mm -hmm. but I have to admit those stories are getting increasingly harder to find. Oh, um, I don't see that kind of goodwill necessarily uh, as being as prevalent. They still exist, but. Um, yeah, they're hard to find. Mm -hmm. Well, that's sad. Um, and uh, so people, 
here's your challenge be the angel <laughs> yes right help somebody out uh you know you've got an extra swipe on your metro pass uh to help someone get home you know use it um you know a, a, another example i can kind of give you is um there was someone um who was behind me in line i happened to be on a, a guest list for um an event up in Seattle. I was seeing a friend, uh, DJ, and I said, hey, you know, I've got a plus one. Why don't you be my plus one? He was obviously alone. And, uh, you know, he, I paid his cover, right? So, and, uh, you know, we actually, we hung out all night. It was great fun. Maybe our paths will cross again someday. He is an airline attendant, so, and I travel quite frequently as well, so who knows? Um, so yeah, I think that that's, that part's important. And I think that, um, the other thing that I think people can do is right now, I think across different waves in society or different institutions, there's a kind of changing of the guard. There is an old guard who fought very hard and very valiantly for, LGBT rights and kind of paved the way. And some of those people have maintained their power for quite some time and they are very reluctant to give it up for one reason or another. And I understand uh, their reluctance to do so for a variety of reasons. Many of them are often uh, good reasons. But there has been a kind of... um, lack of opportunity um, or a lack of reaching out to the younger generation to give them opportunity to participate, volunteer, and to then carry the torch forward. Um, and again, using my own kind of personal life as an example, this happened to me and that's kind of led me to sociology because I wanted to create that kind of change. And so as a young gay nightclub promoter in Indianapolis, well, I became that, I became a promoter within a gay space because I wanted to do something positive for my community. And so I spent, uh, you know, a good three years working on a master's degree and also throwing some of the biggest bashes in Indianapolis to raise money for AIDS. Um, and, you know, doing these kinds of small acts of, of kindness. And um, part of that is because there was not a, a place for me. I had energy. People saw that. Um, why they didn't utilize me or make use of me as a resource, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it was because in those days I was very different. I was a goth industrial kid a very um mean you didn't look gay (laughs) right well and it's something that kind of plagues me today right because i get asked that all the time um you know i make a gay joke or crack a gay uh euphemism and they're like wait a second are you gay right and you know um i just i guess i just don't act gay i don't know (laughs) Right. You you obviously do act gay because you are gay, and you're that reminder that there is not one version of who people are who are gay men. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. I have a shirt, and I almost instead of dressing up, I almost wore this T-shirt, and it says "bear, pup, otter, wolf, fox," <laughs> and in the middle it has unicorn. Right. Um, because, and I like that shirt because. Again, I don't fit those types. Now, interestingly, uh, whenever I'm in a Boys Town, when I'm in a Castro, when I'm in um, the gay district in Seattle, I don't get asked those questions, right? And I think that is part of the beauty of having these kinds of exclusive spaces is they do recognize, to some degree, diversity, right? Um, you know, coming from an urban area that had a kind of quasi neighborhood, yeah, there is a lot of judgment in these places. A lot of it revolves around body type. Um, 
but um, there's also some liberating experiences, right? I mean, there is something about going into Boys Town and seeing gay couples holding hands, you know, uh, same-sex couples kissing, um, seeing non-gender uh, binary conforming individuals. And I don't, I mean, that's just something I, I, uh, I can't express how powerful that is, right? How emotional um, that can be mm-hmm. compared to where I live, where, you know, Lawrence advertises itself as gay friendly, but I don't see that kind of behavior right. for sure not as often. Right. So um, I think, you know, patronizing gay spaces is important, right? Um, there used to be a um, widely accepted um notion within the gay community about the power of the gay dollar and we vote with our dollars and um, a lot of that's kind of fallen aside right and partially because it's harder to figure out who our allies are when you have multinational corporations that are you know anonymous and faceless well even on the the (laughs) local business scale so okay one it's hard to to find out who who the owners are of businesses? I mean, it's not like it's not like people put up a little bio on the door front, you know, that the owner is blah 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 blah. And I'm gonna say my own thing. Just because somebody's a gay man and a business owner doesn't mean I like his politics, mm-hmm. his way of treating his employees, his way, you know, and so. There's that too. It's like I don't have to like you just because you're a gay man. <laughs> yeah, though I I do want to point out one very important. Uh, you shook some cobwebs. Uh, a friend of mine, um, his name's Josh Driver, uh, developed an app called Open for Business, uh-huh. and he is a resident of Indianapolis, and he utilized this app to give spaces that were gay friendly an opportunity uh, to advertise themselves and to get themselves listed mm-hmm. as a response to uh, a bill that was um, passed in Indiana that said basically you could discriminate uh, uh, the religious for li- uh, liberties yeah. bill because um, you know Pence at that time was governor of Indiana so. Um, so that was kind of a really creative solution. Yeah. And I'm always looking for these kinds of technological revolutions yeah. um, that are so hard to find. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's, well, I think there's also this tension between this sense of we want everybody to be welcome everywhere. We want nobody to, to, um, decline being in a certain environment because of who else is going to be there. We also want to provide safety for people who are in groups who are, which are marginalized as groups, which are vulnerable as groups. And so it's like that. So, so how is that? You know, I, I think that finally people learned that the notion of colorblind is bullshit, you know, that's not good. And similarly, you know, it's been a, it's been a, an opportunity for me to learn from trans friends that that even if somebody's gender uh, is they're let's say a, a trans man trans woman even if that person isn't necessarily somebody who stands out as not a cisgender woman or cisgender man that person's life experience still has been totally different mm-hmm. and so so that gets complicated, you know, it's like, yeah, it's nice sometimes to pass, but also it doesn't get me to be known as a person. I mean, it's like, everything's complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I often tell my students on the first day of class that you'll ask me questions and my answer may be, it's complicated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's because there are no easy answers. I mean, just look at this, you know, study I'm doing, I've 
you know, we've kind of been all the way around the world with this, uh, you know, what we've discussed. And it, it's because it's so, um, what, what you call it? It's so complicated. Right? <laughs> um, and it, it's, um, and I like to, um, I want to talk about a concept just very briefly that I'm kind of playing around with, and maybe it'll be the title of the study. But the the LGBT community, um, I think, uh, if we can, if we think of this need for validation, right, this quest for identity as a uh, kind of um, you know uh, velvet curtain, right, and then the attack on that is the velvet rage well then this creation of these gay communities um is the velvet cage right it's a cage that we construct um and it has kind of become our own prison these these neighborhoods but in that right carries with it the um hope and opportunity for change right because if we construct them then that means we can change them the only the, the difficulty is recognizing when, where, and how we can make those changes, and so um, that's kind of what I am always mindful of, or what I'm kind of always looking for is how do where are those moments, and when can we seize them? And you know, I think part of that is holding companies accountable, right? For um, discriminatory practices, like the, for instance, the gay bar that has a dress code that discriminates against people of color by having, you know, no sports jerseys or no ball yeah. caps or no, yeah. uh, which I've seen um, because they are catering to a particular clientele or a particular nightclub that went out of business. Uh, they fired all their Latino and uh, African-American dancers because they were looking for a, quote, all-American image. Wow. Um, Wait a minute. All-American, <laughs> but not those Americans, only these Americans. Yeah, I think that's sort of a unfortunate um, shared message with somebody in power right now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, that that's, well, that's another kind of, um, thing that has really irked me um, is there's a particular gay organization whose um, leader does not rep he does not see the importance of visibility mm -hmm. and why that that might be an issue for some folks mm -hmm. and this person has even gone so far um, to say that he does not believe that people can be raped or that, um, um, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but, you know, um, black people within the gay community are just, you know, whining, right, about being visible and you can never please everybody. I mean, some of the things that I've heard from people, um, these kind of log cabin Republicans, I guess, um, is truly shocking and so i think holding those people accountable is is key right. so hold our elected officials as well as companies accountable right okay well to end on a bright note <laughs> seriously again a recommendation for people what's a good thing to do to be out in the world and be present for people how what's what's a way that you might do that to be out in the world uh, you know, as opposed to just thinking about it at home or posting on your Facebook, it's like, who cares? What are you going to do? What, what would you suggest people do? Um, slap a bumper sticker on your car for HRC. Uh, put a, wear a LGBT shirt down the streets of Lawrence. Um, I guarantee you, you will get heads to spin, but you will also uh, empower other people to uh, also make a message right okay. so so you believe in displaying those messages that's a especially thing. in the midwest okay cool well 
we have the call to action of be an angel and show it publicly, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you, Chris Connor. Um, Chris Connor is a professor at Washburn University, a researcher, sociologist, gay man, music lover, all these things. So learn, look for more. There will be books to come, maybe a little academic. Maybe we can maneuver something like very common accessible to. Who knows? <laughs> That's Thanks, the goal. Chris. All right. right. And so long to our listeners.